Tonight we begin in Matthew chapter 28, and of course there's no doubt where we left off the last time. It was the end of Matthew chapter 27, with a very dramatic account of the crucifixion of Jesus. But not only that, but some of the strange occurrences that happened after his death, such as graves being opened and those who were previously dead resuscitated back to life and seen around Jerusalem for some days, the exclamation of the soldiers surrounding the crucifixion, declaring truly this was the Son of God, Jesus being buried in Joseph's tomb, which again we remember was a new tomb in which no one had previously been set. And this is very important to consider because there could be more than one body in an ancient tomb at any given time. The fact that Jesus' body was the only body to have ever occupied that tomb demonstrated that when the tomb was empty, it was in fact Jesus' body that was gone and nobody else's. And at the end of chapter 27, we saw how the Jewish leaders breaking the Sabbath customs, in all likelihood, if the chronology is correct, there's some debate about the chronology, but uh, assuming the traditional chronology is correct, they came on the Sabbath day, breaking the Sabbath, asking Pilate for the permission to have a Roman guard set at the tomb, and there they were guarding it when we left it at the end of chapter 27. So now we come to chapter 28, with Jesus' dead body in the tomb, hastily prepared for burial by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, set in the tomb as women watched where it was set in the tomb. And now we come to verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to finish the preparation of Jesus' body, which was cut short by the nightfall of the Sabbath, as described for us in Luke chapter 24. So after the Sabbath means on Sunday morning... Now, actually, the Sabbath would have ended on Saturday night, but at nightfall, the women couldn't have negotiated their way to the tomb and had it opened up by the soldiers and done the work. It would have been dark. It would have been impractical to do it. So they waited at their first opportunity following the end of the Sabbath, which would have been Sunday morning, and they came the first day of the week, it tells us, verse 1, and they came there fully expecting to find the dead body of Jesus. Please remember that. When the women walked that morning to the tomb, they did not expect to find the tomb empty. They did not expect to find a living, resurrected Jesus. They expected to complete the preparations that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had started on the previous Friday. Now, that morning, there was, as verse 2 tells us, a great earthquake. Now, please understand, the earthquake did not cause the stone to be rolled away. If anything, the angelic rolling of the stone prompted the earthquake. There was a strange earthquake, and the tomb was opened. 
Now, 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 some people think that this was not a normal earthquake, but referred to a disturbance of the guards at the tomb. It could be translated, there was a great shaking, and maybe the shaking was just among the guards, as sort of they were pushed aside or cast aside when the stone was rolled away and when Jesus came out of the tomb. But verse 2 tells us very plainly, look at it now, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Now, if you just picture that, it's such a terribly dramatic scene, is it not? You you wonder if the women saw this with their own eyes or if it was reported to Matthew and other eyewitnesses later. But this is what happened. An angel came down from heaven and an angel single-handedly showing you how strong and mighty angels are, right? Because traditionally, such a stone would take the strength of several men to roll because it was on an incline and the stone was very heavy. And despite the fact that the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers, despite the fact that it was sealed with a Roman seal, despite the fact that it was protected by all the authority and grandeur of Rome, the angel didn't care about any of that came down. I don't know what he did with the soldiers. The soldiers probably just fled or or backed away or hid behind a bush or something like that. Came down, got rid of the soldiers, broke the Roman seal. Could you imagine the smile on that angel's face as he broke the Roman seal? Thinking, oh, such a thing couldn't, couldn't keep this tomb shut. Breaks the Roman seal and pushes back the stone. Again, you wish you could have seen, you wish you could have seen whether or not the angel had to use effort right? Did the angel really have to put his shoulder into it and and really push? Or did the angel just sort of with a flick of the wrist and and the stone is rolled away and the tomb is open? And then what does the angel do? It's beautiful there in verse two. He sits on it. He goes over to the stone that he just rolled away and he says, well, this looks like a careful, wonderful place to sit. Why don't I sit and enjoy the beautiful morning? Now, please understand the necessity of this was not to let Jesus out of the tomb. Can anybody imagine such a thing? There's Jesus banging on the stone, calling for the angel to let him out. Hey, anybody, won't you let me out? Hello, hello, is there anybody in there? Is there anybody out there, I should say? He was in the tomb. No, 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 no. it was not to let Jesus out of the tomb, not for a moment. You see, we find in other accounts of the resurrection appearances of Jesus that Jesus somehow had the ability in his resurrection body, and apparently perhaps this will be an ability that we have in our resurrection bodies, that Jesus was able to appear in a room or disappear from a room, seemingly to pass through material walls. No, Jesus didn't need to be let out of the tomb. It may very well be, and I think in all probability it was true, the tomb was already empty when the angel rolled away the stone. The angel rolled away the stone not to let Jesus out, but to let people see in and prove that the tomb was empty. That's why the angel did it. Now, that stone that once had made that tomb like a prison cell, a place that that imprisoned the dead body of Jesus, now that stone has become a place of rest. There's the angel sitting on it. He's just relaxing. He's, He's chilling out right there on the stone. Now, that's not good news for everybody, though. Look at verse four. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, he's not even speaking to the guards, he's speaking to the women, do not be afraid, 
For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. Doesn't this give strength to the idea that Jesus was already gone from the tomb? When the angel rolled the stone away, Jesus was already gone. And as the angel does this, it says, verse 4, that the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now, please understand, these were professional soldiers. These were men trained in the most sophisticated, well-equipped, well-trained, proud military on the earth at that time. And the angel doesn't even seem that he had a flaming sword or that he even spoke to the guards, right? All he did was be there. He just existed. It was the presence of his perfect purity that awed these rough legionnaire soldiers. And so it was an object of terror to the guards. But what a message of peace and comfort and joy to the women. Verse 6, he is not here for he is risen. You see, for the very first time now, the followers of Jesus, these faithful women, should we remind ourselves that there's no disciples, there's none of the regular disciples at the tomb right now. It's just these women who were legitimate followers of Jesus. These faithful women heard the news they did not expect to hear. They heard that Jesus was not in the tomb, but that he was risen to resurrection life. Now, please understand this. There are several examples in the Bible of people being resuscitated before this, right? In 1 Kings chapter 17, you have the widow's son in the days of Elijah. In John chapter 11, you have Lazarus. Each of these people, and other examples exist in the scriptures as well, each of these people were resuscitated from death, but none of them were resurrected, Lazarus, when he rose from the dead, he came out of the tomb in exactly the same body that he went into the tomb with. It's just that that body had been made alive again. When Jesus came out of the tomb, he came out with a different kind of body. So please understand, this is not just the reanimation of a dead corpse. This is a new order of life, of resurrection life. Lazarus rose to die again. Can you imagine how depressing that would be for Lazarus? The man who had to die twice. But no, not Jesus. Jesus, he was resurrected. And it's not just living again. It's living again in a new body that's based on our old body. You could say it's connected to our old body. It's perfectly suited, though, for life in eternity. Now, Jesus was not the first one brought back from the dead, right? Lazarus, the widow's son, other people we could mention. But he was the very first one resurrected. And should we say that Jesus is still risen? He ascended into heaven and he continues to reign as a resurrected man. He's fully man and he's fully God. Now you can go to Israel today and you can see a lot of graves and you can see a lot of tombs. If you go to the Mount of Olives today, pious Jews for centuries have wanted to be buried on the Mount of Olives. They believe that that's where the Messiah is going to come down first when he returns to planet Earth. And so they want to be as close as possible to the Messiah. And so you see an 
ocean, a sea of tombs on the Mount of Olives. You can go to Israel today. You can see the tomb of Rebekah. You can see the tomb of David. You can see the tomb of Absalom. But you won't find the tomb of Jesus anywhere because he's not here. Now, I want you to notice one other thing that the angel said. Verse 6, it said that he is not here as he is risen, as he said. With that, the angel wanted to remind these women and all of the disciples that they should have expected that Jesus would do this. It was just what Jesus promised to do. Now, in verse 6, the angel also gives the invitation, simply saying, come see the place where the Lord lay. Again, this emphasizes the point that the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. No, the stone was rolled away so that other people could see in and be persuaded that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Now again, these women had saw the body deposited within the tomb. They saw it with their own eyes. We're told that previously in John chapter 19, verse 41. They knew exactly that Jesus had been put into the tomb. And so they knew that the tomb was empty and that it was the right tomb. Now, we could go on for an extended period, and it would be worthwhile, but we're not going to do it right now, trying to prove the validity of the resurrection. And by the way, can I say that some of the best minds in history have grappled with this problem? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Now, there are some people who approach this issue from what I would call an anti-supernaturalist presupposition. And what an anti-supernaturalist presupposition is, it's simply the modern way of thinking that would just say, miracles don't happen. There's no such thing as a miracle. If somebody claims for a miracle to happen, then it's just a story. It's just a fable. It's like Little Red Riding Hood or Hansel and Gretel or something like that. It has nothing to do with reality. Things like that. Dead people don't come back to life, period. And so, therefore, they would say, we know that the story isn't true. We just have to figure out why it's not true. Now, If a person does not bring that kind of prejudice, that kind of bias to the text and simply says, let's investigate the text and let it speak to us and let it tell its own story, you find that the biblical text is extremely persuasive on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Some of the greatest legal minds of history have carefully examined the evidence and have come up over and over again that if you want to attest that anything happened in history, you would have to say that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The fact of the resurrection is clear enough, but we also have to deal with the meaning of the resurrection. And let me just tell you, the meaning of the resurrection is extremely important. We tend to think that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the important thing, and it is. That's where our sins were paid for. But listen, let me tell you what the resurrection is so important for in relation to the cross. The resurrection proves that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was accepted by God the Father. If you want to put it this way, the work on the cross was the payment The empty tomb is the receipt. You see, Jesus' resurrection proved that his death 
was an actual propitiation or satisfaction for sin and that the Father received it as full payment. Again, the cross was the payment, the resurrection was the receipt, proving that the payment was fully accepted. Now these women were very grateful that the angel told them that they should see the place where Jesus was, where they had laid him. It should have been enough to hear the testimony of the angel, right? Why should the women have to see the empty tomb? If an angel told you such a thing in such circumstances, you should believe it, should you not? No, but the women were wise enough. They said, listen, angel, thank you for this testimony, but I'm not going to take your word alone for it. I am going to go in and with my own eyes see that the tomb is empty. And we're grateful for that because then when the women told the disciples and told other people, we know that Jesus is risen from the dead, they could say not just that they heard it from an angel, but that they saw it with their own eyes. One eyewitness is better than a dozen ear witnesses. The women saw it. And, and so we should understand the same thing. You go to the tomb and it's empty. And it shows that the place where they laid Jesus is empty. You see that the father did not forsake Jesus, did he? No, the father still loved the son and brought him back to resurrection life. When we see the place where they laid him, we see that death is conquered. Death had no power over Jesus. It could not hold him. Jesus triumphed over death. And when we see the place where they laid him, we see that we, you and I, we have a living friend in Jesus. We don't look to Jesus as a noble martyr who died for a great cause and is therefore a great example to humanity by the way he lived his life. Well, listen, you could say he's that, but, but he's infinitely more than that. Because what Jesus was and is, is a living Savior who lives and interacts with us and has relationship for us now and saves us and prays for us now. So what did the angel do? Look at verse 7. He tells Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany to do something. He says this, And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Isn't that a powerful thing? The women come to the tomb, they see the angel roll away the stones, they see the angel sit upon the stone. They, they see the guards cowering in fear. The angel says, don't worry about it, Jesus is risen. I know you've come here looking for Jesus who was crucified. Well, he's not crucified anymore, he's risen. Come, look at the tomb, and they come and they look at the tomb, and then the angel says, okay, now that you've seen him, I want you to go and go quickly and go tell his disciples that he's going before them into Galilee. And what do the women do? They went out, they ran from the tomb. The angel commanded these two women to be the first messengers of Jesus' resurrection. That's good news. You could say that these were the first gospel preachers, right? The first ones who went out and were preachers of the good news. And since these women were some of the few people who were courageous enough 
to publicly identify themselves with Jesus, it was a very appropriate honor for them. These were women who stuck by him at the cross. These were women who saw his body put in the tomb. It was appropriate that they be the first ones given the privilege to share the good news. I like what Spurgeon said here. He said, it wasn't first to those who were the heads of the church, as it were, but first of all to these lowly women who the Lord appeared to. And the apostles themselves had to go to school to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to learn that great truth that the Lord is risen indeed. Oh, there you are, your great apostolic authority and these great pillars of the church. And they were pillars. You're going to get to the New Jerusalem and you're going to see the, the apostles of the Lamb written on the foundations of the New Jerusalem. It's glorious. It's true. It's wonderful. But listen, God did not entrust the first message of the resurrection to those glorious apostles. I mean, didn't he know that Peter was going to be the first pope and that he should be privileged first with this information? Apparently God didn't concern himself with that. And he gave this message first to two women. And there they promised, or he promised them, that Jesus, verse 7, is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. You see, this assured the women that they would see the resurrected Jesus. Now listen, conceivably, it could have been differently, right? Conceivably, Jesus could have risen from the dead, the tomb could have been empty, and none of his followers ever saw him again. And they ask the angel, well, where is Jesus? And the angel would smile and say, he has ascended up into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And listen, it could have worked out that way, right? But no, Jesus knew that they and we needed more than that. That they and we needed face-to-face encounter with the risen Jesus. And this was the promise to the women, not that just Jesus, Jesus lives. By the way, that would have been enough for the women, right? To know that he's alive. To, to know that his body is no longer mangled and tortured and beaten. To know that he had victory over the death of the cross. To, to know that his word was true. Listen, that would have been enough for them, but they get so much more. The promise that you will see him face to face. He was raised in order to continue his relationship with them. And by the way, when he ascended to heaven, that relationship did not end. Oh no, not only is he risen, but he's risen to have relationship with you. Now listen, it would have been better than knowing that he was dead to know that he was risen and just immediately ascended into heaven. But this was far better that he was risen to have and to continue a real relationship with his disciples. And so verse 8, they ran to bring his disciples' word. These women, who were filled with fear and great joy, did exactly what the angel told them to do. He told them to go quickly, and they did. So verse 9, and as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them. Isn't that wonderful? There they are. They're running to tell the disciples. They're being obedient, right? They're obeying the command that was given to them at the resurrection. And what happened? Verse 9 again. Behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. What else could Jesus say to them? What possible other word could Jesus say to them at that moment other than rejoice? Now, listen, I love what the angel said. And I don't know if the angel set this up psychologically or something. But listen, the women were not expecting to see Jesus immediately, right? Oh, we will see him 
when we go to Galilee. So yes, we're going to see Jesus again. I know it. I'm confident. But it's going to be a few days because it's going to take us a few days to get from Jerusalem to Galilee. But in a few days, I don't know, two, three, four, five days, we will see Jesus risen from the dead again. And what? As soon as they run in the path of obedience, doing what God told them to do, immediately they run into Jesus. And Jesus says to them, rejoice. You know, it's interesting. The old King James Version translates that word rejoice with this phrase, all hail. That's what Jesus said to them. All hail in the old King James Version. And that word hail represents the normal Greek greeting. It's almost a very down-home way of saying hello, hi. That's what Jesus said to them. You know, the the angel gave a very fearsome, hi, I'm a mighty angel, come back to roll back stones and defeat Roman soldiers and all that. And what does Jesus say to the women? Hiya! Hey! Good to see you! It's just such a warm, personal greeting. And so what happens again? Verse 9, Behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Now what has to happen for them to hold him by the feet? I don't think that they bent over at the waist, told him. No, they immediately dropped in worship and adoration before Jesus. And as they dropped down in this posture of worship, they grabbed onto his feet. I can just imagine they're saying, we lost hold of you once. We are never going to lose hold of you again. They grabbed onto him and they were just so happy to feel, to feel his body. That he wasn't a phantom, he wasn't a ghost, he wasn't an illusion, he wasn't a figment of their imagination, he he wasn't some uh, thing conjured up out of a hyperactive imagination or wishful thinking. No, he was real. And Jesus received their worship and it was appropriately given. An hour before, these women thought that everything was lost because they thought that Jesus was dead. You know, we can only understand the psychological impact of this if we consider how low the women must have been going to the tomb to prepare more properly the body of Jesus for its burial. Could you imagine such tragic work that that is? Could you imagine the disciples wanting to do that? The the, the women going around to the disciples uh, Peter, do you want to go with us and, you know, finish the preparation of Jesus' body? No. No, I don't want to go there. John? No, no. You know, Andrew? No, no way. None of the men wanted it. It's too depressing. It's too dark. But but the women filled with the, the, the idea of duty and a righteous cause and wanting to serve Jesus in any way that they can, they come and their hearts are so low and for their hearts to go from so low to so high so quickly... Oh, listen, now they knew that everything was gained because Jesus was alive. And so what does Jesus say to them? Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee where they will see me. You see, I think Jesus had to tell them this because if he wouldn't have told them this, hey, ladies, go go on your way, just like you were doing before. They would have stayed there forever. They, They would have just stayed there just holding on to Jesus. No, go, go do what I've told them to do, what I've told you, what the angel told you to do. But he says something very, very interesting in verse 10. Did you see this? What did he say? Go and tell those rats who left me at the cross to go to Galilee. Uh, Go go and tell 
uh, my cowardly so-called disciples. Go, go tell that bunch of losers who had the guts to, you know, call themselves my followers. No, what does he say? It's really remarkable. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee. Adam Clark says this. This is the first time our Lord called his disciples by this endearing name. They no doubt thought that their Lord would reproach them for their past cowardice and infidelity. But in speaking thus, he gives them a full assurance in the most tender terms that all that was past was as buried forever. Could you imagine? The women run back and they finally get back to the disciples. They say, listen, not only does he want to see you guys and he's going to meet you in Galilee and all of that. He says, and he called you brethren. He still loves you. Matter of fact, he called you by a name that he never heard him call you by during all the days of his earthly ministry. You are his brothers. Verse 11. Now that while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Very interesting, isn't it? The religious leaders knowing that the truth that the fact of a resurrected Jesus would completely destroy their credibility and exalt the person and the teaching and the work of Jesus Christ in the very midst, they concocted a plan to counteract the truth of the resurrection. And verse 13 tells us that they told the soldiers guarding the tomb that this was to be their story. His disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. Again, this cover-up attempt shows us the darkness of these religious leaders. Ladies and gentlemen, consider this just for a minute. These religious leaders knew the truth of the resurrection. They knew it. They knew the tomb was empty. They knew that something profound had happened to make four tough Roman soldiers completely desert their post and put up no kind of battle. They knew the truth, but they rejected it and not only chose a lie, but they created a lie in an attempt to cover up the truth. And they paid money for it. Verse 12 says that they gave a large sum of money. Literally in the Greek, that is a sufficient money. And it would have had to been a big amount. Because did you know that for a Roman soldier to sleep on duty could very well bring that soldier the death penalty. The death penalty. These four Roman soldiers had to put themselves under risk to the death penalty. Now, of course, the priests, the, the religious leaders, they said, oh, don't worry, we'll cover you up. But what if they couldn't cover it up? To admit such a thing might mean their very lives. It would take a lot of money to silence these Roman soldiers and to persuade them to tell a lie instead of the truth. And what a lie it was. Did you see what their lie was? Look at it again. Verse 13. 
His disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. Now, can I just say, they didn't think very long about this cover-up. It shows how foolish it was. Can I just suggest this? If it was true that the guards were asleep, then they wouldn't know that it was the disciples that stole the body of Jesus, right? How could they say, we slept through this, yet we know it was the disciples who did it? Oh, really? How did you know it was the disciples? You were asleep. They would have no answer for this. You see, to believe their lie, this is what we would have to believe. First of all, you would have to believe that all the soldiers were asleep. All four of them. Now, I could see where one might fall asleep. I could even see where two might fall asleep. Matter of fact, in a normal Roman guard duty of four guards, two would be on duty and two would rest. It may very well be the two of them were sleeping at the time. That would be normal. But you would have to believe that all four guards were asleep. And then you would have to believe that all the soldiers violated the strict law of the Roman military against sleeping on watch, which was punishable by death. And then you would have to believe that all the soldiers slept so deeply that none of them were awakened by the work and the exertion and the noise necessary to roll away the stone and carry out the body. And you would have to believe that all the soldiers were so soundly asleep, yet they knew who it was who did this. Can you imagine? It's beautiful to see the picture of the disciples, right? In the evening before Jesus' crucifixion, how divided, how disunited they were. And now, according to this lie, they are an expert commando terrorist team who knows how to work with such quietness that they can roll back a stone so that not a single Roman soldier out of four would be awakened. This is now a remarkable team of supermen, which of course they were not. But verse 15 says, this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. You know, this was just the first of many attempts to try to disprove or put away the truth of the resurrection by suggesting alternatives. Some people say that he didn't die at all, but he just swooned or fainted on the cross and that he was spontaneously revived in the tomb. Other people say that he really died, but his body was stolen. Still others suggest that he really died, but that his desperate followers hallucinated his resurrection. A plain, simple understanding of the evidences and of the historical story of the resurrection answers all of these theories, and it shows this, that it takes far more faith to believe in those crazy theories than it does to believe in the simple and straightforward biblical account of the resurrection. You know, there may be some people alive who would say, I, I don't think that uh, Julius Caesar or Napoleon Bonaparte or George Washington or, or, or Kaiser Wilhelm or any of those, go, well, I don't believe any of them existed. Well, fine, if you want to have that mind where you don't believe anything ever can be proven from history, fine. But I would say this, if anything can be proven from history, then the resurrection of Jesus Christ can be proven by the historical record. Listen, sometimes we sing this song. 
right? Have you ever sung this song? You ask me how I know he lives. He lives, he lives inside my heart. Now that's true. But let me tell you something, friends. That is not the best way to prove that Jesus lives. Jesus lives not because he lives in your heart. Jesus lives because the historical evidence demands that we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. If we can believe anything in history, we can believe in the reliable, confirmed testimony of these eyewitnesses, Jesus rose from the dead. Now, because he rose from the dead, then he can live in your heart. And I hope he does live in your heart. And I hope you rejoice that he lives in your heart. But please understand, he does not live because he lives in your heart. He lives because it's true. It's a fact. Even if you were to reject Jesus, even if you were to, so to speak, cast him out of your heart, he would still live because this is what we might call a true truth. It isn't something that just depends on the perspective of the believer. Well, if for you, you want him to live, then he lives. If you don't want him to live, then he doesn't live. He never, no, 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 no. It's true. It's an objective fact in history, and we rejoice because of it. Now, so many of the other Gospels, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John, give very fascinating other instances of Jesus's appearances to his disciples. And it would be wonderful, and I don't want to say entertaining in a wrong way, but it would be very entertaining for us to spend time examining those. But we're not going to. We're concerning ourselves with the text of Matthew, right? And Matthew doesn't give us very much in these post-resurrection encounters of Jesus with his disciples. But here's one, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now again, Matthew doesn't tell us about the Jerusalem appearances of Jesus, Jesus to his disciples as, for example, John does. Jesus appeared to his disciples while they were still in Jerusalem, but he also certainly appeared to them also when they were in Galilee. You see, Jesus was more interested in showing, excuse us, Matthew, I should say, was more interested in showing us that the promise of Jesus made back in Matthew chapter 26, verse 32, that after he was risen, he would see them in Galilee. He's showing us that this promise was fulfilled. Now, verse 16 gives us a very interesting phrase, don't you think? He says, that Jesus met them at the mountain which he had appointed for them. This would be some familiar place, some place where they had past association, past meetings. They knew where to meet Jesus at this particular mountain, verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. It wasn't their first meeting with the risen Jesus, but it was an important one. And as they met him, they worshipped him. But notice what verse 17 says, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, I would say that the natural reaction to encountering the risen Jesus is worship. Even if some had to un overcome uncertainty and hesitation. Why did they feel this way? Even after they had seen Jesus before, risen from the dead in Jerusalem. I think it was probably from the feeling 
first of all, that it was too good to be true. Please understand, these were not men under a hallucination. These were not men who desperately wanted to see the resurrected Jesus, and therefore they created a hallucination in their own minds. No, no, a thousand times no. Even when they had seen Jesus repeatedly, they still found it hard to believe. And it says, and some doubted. Again, probably some from a feeling that it was too good to be true, but probably others from a lingering shame from having forsaken Jesus during his suffering. Again, it's very interesting. One commentator, R.T. France, he says this, that the verb that's translated doubting, it doesn't describe a settled unbelief, but sort of a state of uncertainty and hesitation. Jesus, we know you're there, but there's something strange going on with us. And there is, I think here, something very beautiful, very powerful here. Here is what we might call a genuine historical echo. If you would have been there as Matthew was, you would have never forgotten the intense, mixed emotions and overwhelming feelings of this meeting. You know, someone who was just riding a forgery, a a fakery. Oh, and they saw him and they rejoiced and they all sang and happily ever after. But someone who was there at the event would have said they worshipped him, but it was strange. Some of us doubted. There was something weird going on in our minds and in our hearts. And now verse 18, finishing the book. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. First, Jesus told them in verse 18, that he had all authority in heaven and on earth. The command that Jesus is about to give them is given in light of his authority. This indicates that the command Jesus is about to give them is an authoritative command. It's not a suggestion. Uh, You know, hey guys, I was just thinking there might be some good things to do. You can do them or not do them, whatever you want to do. You know, maybe you go out and tell some people about what happened and, you know, maybe just, just let them know what's been going on lately. You know, if you want to. No, it's nothing like that, right? Instead, he looks at his disciples at this very intent meeting and he tells them first, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And let me tell you, if the disciples weren't listening before, I'm sure they were, but just in case they weren't listening before, they are listening now. Because he has authority, he can send whoever he wants to do whatever he pleases. And he says, all authority. By the way, in these verses, you can make a nice little tie together. All authority, all nations, all things, and all the days of your life. So he says, listen, Jesus has this power. And now he says, verse 19, go therefore. Because Jesus has this power, this divine power, right? I mean, who else but God could say that all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth? 
Jesus knows that he's God, that he's equal with the Father. He has this power, and because he has this power, he has the authority to tell us to go. It's his authority that sends us. It's his authority that guides us. It's his authority that empowers us. His work and his message continue in this world through his disciples. Now, please understand, who did Jesus say this to? He said it to a group of very imperfect disciples, right? Well, these guys were far from perfect. These guys were not a well-coordinated machine. They weren't a great team. Each one of them as individuals and collectively as a group, they had their problems. Yet Jesus spoke to them and he said, you guys, you as unprepared, as unready, as carnal as you sometimes seem, you, you go out and do this job. You go, verse 19, and make disciples of all the nations. We notice that, do we not? That he said to make disciples, not merely converts, not merely supporters of a cause. The idea behind the word disciples is of scholars, of learners, of students. You go out and make learners, make students. And by the way, when he says make disciples, doesn't that tell us that disciples are made? Disciples, you might say, are not spontaneously created at conversion. They are the product of a process that involves other disciples, right? Other believers. Jesus wouldn't have told these men to go out and make disciples unless disciples had to be made. And they're made through the work of other believers. Again, this job of making disciples, this is the power of spreading Christianity. Again, if I could quote Spurgeon, he says this. Imagine Muhammad on his dying bed saying to his disciples, All power is given to me in heaven and earth. And then what would his command be? Go you therefore with sharp swords and bring forth the faith of the prophet or death as the alternative and avenge me of the men who threw stones at the prophet and make their homes a dunghill and cut them in pieces for vengeance is mine and God's prophet must be avenged of his enemies. That's what you could imagine Muhammad saying. But what did Jesus say? All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. So therefore you, my followers, my men, my disciples, you go out and make disciples. Of who? Of all the nations. Now in his previous three years of ministry, Jesus deliberately restricted his work to the Jewish people. And he previously sent his disciples with the same restriction. In Matthew chapter 10, he says, Listen, disciples, go out and do a work around Galilee, but only go to the lost sheep of Israel. It was only on rare exceptions that Jesus ministered among the Gentiles. But listen, all that's in the past now. And now the disciples are commissioned to take the gospel to all the nations. Look, can I just say it this way? That there is no place on earth where the gospel of Jesus should not be preached and where disciples should not be made. There's no place off limits to us. Make disciples of all men everywhere without distinction. Now listen, isn't it interesting that Jesus commanded them to do this 
And they did it, but only after a long time. How long it took. And I'm sorry, I don't have the number immediately. I'm at, I'm at 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, whatever it was. It took them a long time before they ventured with the gospel beyond Judaism. Sometimes I think, and I know this is wrong thinking. Please forgive me for thinking wrong here. But sometimes I think that the day of Pentecost set them back in this. That when they saw such evangelistic success among their fellow Jews, that instantly it got set in their mind that they could bring their own people to Christ and that that should be the field of their work. Sometimes I think it would have been better for the nations if only three or four people would have come forward on the day of Pentecost instead of three or four thousand Because if only three or four would have come forward, then they would have said, well, this isn't working. Let's do what Jesus said. Let's go out to the nations. But because it worked, or because of whatever reason, because they were hesitant, because they were unbelieving, because they lost their big heart for the world, it took them a long time, many years. And really, it was only because of the force of persecution that made Christians scatter from Jerusalem and send the gospel to all the nations. And when they're to go, verse 19, they're to be baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, notice, when Jesus told them to go to all the nations, he did not tell them to circumcise those who became disciples, right? No, no, a thousand times no. Instead, they were to baptize them, suggesting this break with traditional Judaism. And so do it into the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, there's some people who want to make a big deal about this baptismal formula. And there's some people who say that these are the words that must be pronounced upon somebody when they're baptized. And there's other people who say, no, 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 no. You baptize somebody into the name of Jesus. Believe it or not, there are people who make big distinctions about this. There are people who say that you are not saved unless the right words are said over you when you were baptized. They'll say, well, you were baptized, but were you baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, I don't really remember what the guy said when he baptized me. Well, then maybe you're not saved. So you know what I do when I baptize people? I cover all the bases. I say, I baptize you into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I baptize you into the name of Jesus. And then I put them under. Just so that there's no doubt whatsoever. By the way, too, should we just say that here he also commands them in verse 20, not merely to baptize, but you could say even with greater emphasis, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Disciples are made not merely through conversion, not merely through baptism, but through teaching. And the teaching is not with words only, but also with the power of the always present Jesus. And he would be present with his people until the job of making disciples is done, until the end of the age. And what are they to teach? The content of the teaching is this, verse 20, all things that I have commanded you. The followers of Jesus are responsible to present the whole counsel of God to those who are being made disciples. Then in verse 20, Jesus says something very wonderful, isn't it? He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Jesus sent his disciples with a mission to fulfill. But he didn't send them alone. The promise of his constant presence was more than enough to strengthen and guide the disciples as they would obey Jesus in making disciples of all the nations. It's very interesting here. There's the word that's translated in English here, always. Lo, I am with you always. The ancient Greek word that's translated there, always, is a very interesting expression in the Greek New Testament. And it's found only here in the Greek New Testament. You know what it literally means? It means the whole of every day. When he says, I'm with you always, you know what he was saying? I'm with you all day, every day. That's how much he's with you. And then he says, I am with you even to the end of the age. That presence of Jesus, it means privilege because we work with a great king. It it means also that we work for Jesus and with Jesus. It means privilege. It means protection. It means power. Jesus is with us. And might we say it also says it means peace. When you know Jesus is with you in your work, your work is privileged. You're working together with a great king. You should have confidence in it. How how unbelieving we sometimes are when we expect so little that God would do through us. Now look, you're a weak worker for God, I'll admit it. You are, I am, so what? But we're working with him. We have a very strong partner. And yes, we are weak, but he is a mighty partner and he's with us all day, every day, even until the end of days. It means privilege. It means protection, right? What can get to us if it has not first gone through our partner? It means power. We work with the one who has all the authority in heaven and earth. And it means peace. It always reminds us that the church belongs to Jesus. It's his church and it's his work. Why then should we worry? I like what John Trapp, our familiar Puritan commentator, said at this. He said, when Christ said, I will be with you, you may add whatever you want to. I'll be with you to protect you, to direct you, to comfort you, to carry on the work of grace in you, and in the end, to crown you with immortality and glory. All this and more is included in this precious promise. Now, I find it interesting. Matthew doesn't include the ascension of Jesus into heaven. He doesn't include some of the more touching appearances of Jesus with his disciples, such as Jesus on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, restoring Peter and having a meal with his disciples. But very deliberately, Matthew ends it here. Why? So that in this gospel, this gospel, which was written with a very Jewish flavor and with a very Jewish mindset in, in, in view, very much wanting to show how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament promises of the Messiah to show that even though the work of Jesus began among the Jewish people, by no means does it end there, that Jesus himself intended it to continue to all nations, even unto the end of the age. I don't know about you, but I imagine Matthew 
biting his lip just a minute. Shouldn't I write about the ascension? Shouldn't I write about this? No, no. It's important that I leave them with this. I want the last thing ringing in their ears, this great commission that Jesus gave his people to do and his great promise that he would be with us all day, every day, even until the end of days. I think that's enough for any of us. So, Father, that's our prayer. We read this, Lord, and we're challenged by it. We can't read this without thinking, what are we doing, Lord? What are we doing to get your word out, to make disciples to all nations? And so, Father, I pray that you'd show us. Lord, I believe that you want every Christian to have some hand in this work, a hand in prayer, a hand in going, a hand in supporting, a hand in upholding, a hand in doing something. Lord, every Christian could and should be a part of this earnest work of making disciples of all the nations, those right near to us and those distant from us. Lord, you love them all the same. And you have intended that we do the work of making disciples. Help us to do this, Lord, and thereby to bring you glory. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this work that you privilege us to do. And thank you for your promise that you'd be with us all day, every day, even unto the end of days. In Jesus' name, amen.